1: Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Now, every day seems to be, well, Groundhog Day in Congress. And funny that it is, in fact, Groundhog Day, to top it off. Republicans who howled when Republicans Democrats kicked Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar off committees, now turning around and kicking off Ilhan Omar off of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, after giving Greene and Gosar, well, brand new committee assignments. But Congressman George Santos, who lied his way into Congress, well, Apparently, no penalties as of yet. Today, he called on Congress to fight bigotry and anti-Semitism as well, which, of course, laudable, but pretty rich, coming from a guy who repeatedly claimed to be Jewish, then said he meant, well, Jew-ish. Plus, as we're waiting for the release of up to 20 more hours of footage related to the police being that led to the death of Tyree Nichols, the conversation across the country is now about how policing has to change, But the question really is, will that change come from Washington or will it be in a classroom that we keep talking about it instead? Or maybe from a local level or from police chiefs and officers themselves? And there is an investigation in Ohio of an online homeschooling network where parents allegedly shared messages of white supremacy and Hitler quotes as educational resources for the students. Why the state may not be able to do a thing about it. Lots going on tonight. I want to begin with the party line vote today to oust Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Congresswoman defiant on the House floor before that very vote, saying this would not diminish
2: her leadership. My leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger, and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. So take your vote or not, I am here to stay and I am here to be a voice against harms around the world and advocate for a better world. I yield back.
1: I want to bring in CNN Senior Political Analyst Kirsten Powers, former National Republican Senatorial Committee aide Liam Donovan, and former Obama White House Senior Director Nayara Huck. Glad to see you all here. Listen, um, we talk about Groundhog Day, right? We talk about the way in which we've seen a lot of this before. And the premise of that movie, of course, I'm obviously a Bill Murray fan, an Annie McDowell fan, is the idea of trying to get it right time and time again and having the same set of circumstances come up. In fact, Let's pay a little homage for a second as to how often we refer to it.
3: Weatherman Phil Connors is spending the day in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania.
0: Phil? Mad! Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Bing!
3: But Phil's about to find out... He's not just stuck in Punxsutawney.
2: Will you be checking
4: out today, Mr. Connors?
3: Chance of departure today, 100%. He's stuck. In Groundhog Day! In
1: Groundhog Day. <laughs> I bring it up because how often you hear people say, it's Groundhog Day, it's Groundhog Day. I happen to love that movie. But I bring this up particularly, Kirsten, because look, we have been here before where there has been an opportunity for members of Congress to identify a problem, change it, and demonstrate some maybe moral compass or demonstrate a connective tissue that says, here's who ought to lead and be consistent in many ways. And then the very next chance they have to get it right again, it's a whole different ballgame. And we're still not quite at the point where it has actually been accomplished in a way that is not hypocritical. What do you say about today?
5: Well, I mean, it is hypocritical what the Republicans are doing to complain about something and then turn around and do the exact thing, same thing. I think that's the most minor problem here, though. <laughs> I think the much bigger problem is this obsessed obsession with persecuting Ilhan Omar. Uh, we have three mem- Muslim members of Congress. You know, two of them are women that the GOP is obsessed with persecuting, right? So that, that's the biggest problem that we have right here, that this is not about anything else other than mainly anti-Muslim sentiment. And I think that it's important to have her voice on the foreign in any foreign policy discussion because so much of our foreign policy actually does involve people who look like her and who have her experience and have her beliefs. And so to take her off of there and say, oh, it's no big deal because it's just it's just foreign policy. It's like, no, that's exactly where she should be. And she apologized. You have Jewish members of Congress who have stood up and said, you know, she absolutely should be, she has, she has done the work of repentance and repair and she has learned and she she's is doing better and on this issue and there's no problem here. So the Republicans don't have really a leg to stand on here. Well, here, well I want to play. I want, I want to hear your particularly
1: about the but I want to play what Speaker McCarthy had to say, because he of course says that's not what this, it's, it's because it's foreign affairs in particular that she cannot be on the committee. Listen to what he has to say and I want to hear your response
4: we're not removing her from other committees, we just do not believe when it comes to foreign affairs, especially the responsibility of that position around the world with the comments that you make. She shouldn't serve there. So if there is a concern, it's not tit for tat, but I think in moving forward, every single member of Congress has a responsibility to how they carry themselves.
6: Do you buy his explanation? No, because uh, if it was a matter of combating anti-Semitism, then Congresswoman Jewish space leisures and uh, Congressman Jew-ish would also not be engaged in these votes and in these conversations uh, that come to the House floor about foreign policy. It's not only the committee Congress authorizes writ large, defense spending, uh, aid, military aid overseas— Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is also visibly Muslim. She is had to get a special dispensation for wearing religious headgear because she wears a hijab on her head. That was new for Congress. Only about 15 or 16 years ago did we even see the first member of Congress. When I was an intern, when I was a staffer there, there was nobody in leadership uh, in Congress. Um, There barely any other Muslim American staffers. So it is a big deal to have had three so far. Uh, And her representation goes beyond that. She's a refugee. She is from Africa. She represents the Somali-American community and all that they have had to deal with uh, in relation to counterterrorism efforts. So her experience and her representation have been essential to the democratic narrative. There's also the idea, Liam, about, you know, there is the, 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 the violence
1: um, rhetorically around her, but there's also the idea of violence, how it's come into, the, into Congress. And there has not been an equal measure of punishment based on violent statements, on incendiary remarks. In fact, we all have heard Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez today speaking about an incident involving Congressman Paul Gozar, where her life, she feels, was really threatened and no consequence. Here it is.
7: I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life, and you
1: all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about an abdic- a-, a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who, have t- who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an-, an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of
7: America. Don't tell me, because I didn't get a single apology. Time has My life was threatened. Thank
6: you.
1: I mean, Liam, what's your reaction? Well, so I think with, with
8: Congressman Gosar, that was what this previous fight was about back in 2021. The punishment was that he was removed from the committees. That set the precedent that McCarthy howled about at the time, saying that this is a double standard. This is all about, I mean, he says it's not tit for tat. This is about a a procedural pretext, being able to point to the fact that Pelosi did this, so we're going to do it back. Going back to what Kirsten said about the longstanding uh, uh, hangups over Ilhan Omar, her, her statements, remember, when she was named to the Foreign Affairs Committee in the first place, they were housed. So they've, you know, whether that's principle or good faith or bad faith, they've wanted her out for a long time. This opened the door for their ability to do that by pointing to the fact that it happened to Green, uh, Taylor Green, and it happened to Gosar.
5: For yeah. different reasons, but, though, right? But it's I mean, also... It, the, the thing is, the Democrats removed them because the Republicans wouldn't remove them. So it's it's just this sick game that they play. And Democrats <laughs> you know, don't
6: censure, yeah. censure their own, right? Their, yeah. like, Ilhan Omar and, and yeah. Majority Minority Leader Jeffrey spoke about how she had been counseled, they had been condemned by her own party. We're not hearing Republican transgressors right. of common decency or those who support the insurrection being admonished by current Republican leadership? I mean,
5: you know, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene had to go visit the Holocaust Museum because she did, wasn't sure that the Holocaust I- even existed, right? So please spare us this stuff about how you're so concerned about anti-Semitism. How about Donald Trump, who has dinner with openly anti-Semitic people, you know, Nick Fuentes? It's like in Kanye West. Just, this is not on the up and up. Okay. this is 100 percent. They have been out for her from the minute she has set foot in Congress. They have been crazed. You had Marjorie Taylor Greene when she was running for office, posing with a gun and talking with pictures of the squad, you know, with Ilhan Omar and and AOC and Rashida Tlaib. You know, two of those people happen to be Muslim women. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder what that's about.
8: Well, one thing I do want to point out because we haven't talked about it. Kevin McCarthy has the ability as Speaker to unilaterally take people off certain committees, including the Intelligence Committee. So we're not talking about Schiff not and Swalwell. Affairs, right. Not Foreign Affairs, it's a standing committee. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about Omar because he's the only person on a standing committee that they are removing. But he already did this to Schiff and Swalwell, again, with sort of a discreet reason to, to do that. He promised to do that or at least alluded to an intention to do that back on the floor debate in 2021. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, this is just kind of. This coming home yeah. but, to but we have
5: to remember this is all catering to the far right in the Republican Party. There are many Republicans who are uncomfortable with this. And so this is something that the, the far right who he had to basically make all these concessions to to become the leader, he's trying to keep them happy. Well, and any-
1: Speaker Jeffrey, I want to point out, I want, I want to, you want to hear this. He actually points out what this might mean in the long run in terms of the relationship between Democrats and Republicans with this very narrow majority. Listen to what he had to say about, well, the complexity of that relationship now going forward.
9: Speaker McCarthy knows I strongly disagree with him and them on this issue. And this type of poisonous, toxic double standard is going to complicate the relationship moving forward between House Democrats and House Republicans.
6: Foreboding and yet likely accurate. And they need, Republicans are going to need a few Democrats to be able to get any of their debt limit budget compromises done. So it is not a simple majority that'll get Kevin McCarthy his work or, or to pass his agenda. And he is constantly on the back foot with, with these fights that cater to the MAGA base of his party, as opposed to advancing any type of positive message for Republicans, even though he's in charge. We'll see how voters look at all this. Everyone,
1: thank you. Stick around. When we come back, Memphis says there are 20 hours of Additional footage related to the brutal police beating of Tyree Nichols, and it's still to come. Frankly, a terrible reminder of just how much policing in this country needs to be reformed. But where will that change and all the reform actually come from, and in what form, and when? President Joe Biden meeting today with leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus just one day after the funeral of Tyree Nichols, who was beaten beyond recognition by police in Memphis. The president joining the calls for policing reform.
4: My hope is this dark memory spurs some action that we've all been fighting for. It. And uh, although you just got to keep at it, I listened to uh, Uh, Al Sharpton's eulogy, which I thought was first rate. And uh, we got to stay at it as long as it takes.
1: Here with me in the studio, CNN Legal Analyst, Elliot Williams and Joshua School, former FBI Assistant Director for Intelligence. Also joining us, Sue Rar, former sheriff of King County, Washington. Let me begin with you, Sue, out there, because I think it's important to, to really orient the conversation, especially based on your experience. You were in law enforcement, and you wrote a piece that was very compelling and thought-provoking in The Atlantic. And you say that after watching the Tyree Nichols video— you know why this keeps happening. You say it's police culture. Tell me what you think needs to be changed.
10: Well, we have, to, we have to let go of the mythology that police are fighting a noble battle between good and evil. Police are used as a cleanup crew. They're used as a substitute for unfunded social services that keep ma- neighborhoods healthy and, and vigorous. And at some point, I'm hoping I can get my peer law enforcement leaders to stand up and say, we're not going to do this anymore. There there has to be policing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't need police. But we can't use them as a substitute. We have to have adequately funded social services. And there's a whole array of other issues that lead communities to be in the situations that they're in. But we first have to start by bringing in services to help people.
1: Um, Joshua, you, in your experience as well, I mean, former FBI executive assistant director, and, and thinking about this, I mean, there ought to be, obviously, a symbiotic relationship between the community and police officers. But they are often complaining and justifiably in many respects about being the catch-all that she speaks of. 911 in and of itself being the catch-all, having to be the jack of all trades, responding to things like mental health calls without having the proper training. And it runs the gamut as well. I'm not excusing excessive force or poor behavior that goes against training, but tell me what you make of the idea of this catch-all, the idea of um, police officers being asked to do too much, which leads to this culture.
4: I think law enforcement, first of all, they need the community to do their job. They have to rely on the community to do their job. So th- that relationship that you talk about is essential to law enforcement and policing. They are asked to be to do too much today. And when you look at uh, the transgressions of law enforcement, of course, the horrific acts in Memphis, I think you have to go back to the root causes. You have to look at what is the training? What are the hiring practices? Are we bringing the right people? Are we bringing the right culture? Those are the core root of the problem to get on the front end of why this happened, not to clean it up after the fact.
1: It's an important point because along with community, obviously, um, is going to be trust. And trust is obliterated, if not fatally diminished, when you've got instances after instance after instance of what happens when someone has a great deal of responsibility and believes they're omnipotent as Mm -hmm. a result and untouchable as a result. We are learning that there are about 20 hours of additional footage involved in the Memphis um, police beating of Tyree Nichols. I bring that up, in uh, especially what you just said, because we're going to be looking at this and looking retrospectively Mm -hmm. at what happened as opposed to in real time or forward thinking, what does it say to you that you've got all this footage and still the problems persist?
11: Yeah, well, look, it's a cultural point. I want to pick up on what Sheriff Rarr said just a minute ago about... So the philosophy behind policing, right? And no good or wrong to this, but baked into American culture is the idea that police are warriors, not guardians of community. Think about just basic things like, for instance, the term troops. Uh, troops are troopers referring to police. It doesn't have to be that way, but the notion of policing as an offshoot of the military is just sort of who we are as Americans. And that could change as a sort of rethinking and reshaping of how we approach policing. She also made a great point about about um, social services. And Seattle has actually done a great, a great deal of this. Think about the individual who uh, is urinating behind the library or even the kid in school who might even be violent. Most of those circumstances call for a social worker, not an armed police officer to show up. And the likelihood of a serious altercation, perhaps ending in a fatality, is greatly increased when somebody shows up with a firearm. Imagine if we just rethought the whole idea Of policing, not as social services, because there are times when you need armed police officers, and you want armed police officers. But most encounters really require social services showing up on the scene, not someone uh, uh, who who might necessarily increase the risk of of violence happening.
1: Sheriff Rob, we bring you back into this conversation on that point about the idea of um, the different roles and what is needed. But it also strikes me when you talk about the the culture of police. Um, the term mm-hmm. that people use obviously refers to a very big umbrella, and yet we've got a patchwork of individual police departments without one singular universal standard. We don't even have the idea of a national registry, et cetera, of um, different officers or problematic officers. So we talk about the culture of policing. Is it possible to change the culture of policing when you've got hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of
10: individual cultural police departments I think it is possible, but we ha- it, it's going to be very difficult. And because we have 18,000 different opinions, both for the local city councils and the police chiefs, there has to be incentives, I believe. Because the federal government doesn't control local uh, criminal justice, the federal government can certainly offer incentives to change the training model, to provide technical assistance on how do you change your academy? So from day one, you don't start out creating stormtroopers. You start out creating guardians who believe that they have a role in the community to protect and serve, not to suppress and, and conquer. That's necessary sometimes. The, the other thing that we have to be very careful of is we talk about alternative call handling. We should be sending social workers. Or we should be diverting these calls to, to another system. That system isn't properly funded. And so we've got to be careful that we build that up before we start diverting people. We did this in the 70s with the mental health system. And we said, we're not going to lock people into state hospitals. We're going to send them back into the community for treatment. But that, that system never, never rose mm-hmm. to the occasion. And that's why we are in the mess we're in right now with mental health issues. Joshua, I'll give you the last word
1: on this. Um, what, are the, what are those incentives the sheriff, speaker? What would that really look like? What, that would be something that would be the kind of carrot that would provoke change? Is
4: well, it I think financial? They, it's certainly financial. When you look at uh, law enforcement agencies, the 18,000 that the sheriff uh, uh, talked about, over half of them have less than 20 departments. How are those funded? How are they uh, paying for body-worn cameras? How are they changing training? What does a national standard look like? And how is the federal government going to assist law enforcement with those cultural changes? I think those are really important issues to examine.
1: It really is. It speaks to the idea of that universal and national standards that likely are included in some pending legislation, by the way, on issues. We'll see how those all turn out. Thank you all. Also, looking to Ohio, where authorities are investigating an online homeschooling network where parents allegedly shared pro-Nazi and white supremacist messages as education resources. And shockingly, there might be little at all the state can actually do about it. We'll explain next. Well, tonight, an investigation is underway in Ohio by the state's Education Department. This following reports that parents who are members of an online homeschooling network are allegedly sharing white supremacist and pro-Nazi messages as educational resources to teach the children. Said to be included are posts described as racist and anti-Semitic and homophobic. An education official says that very little can be done because the department does not review or approve homeschooling curriculums. CNN's Omar Jimenez is working on this developing story, and he joins us now. Omar, I'm so glad to see you here and following this story, because really, it's pretty shocking to think that there's not the oversight that one would presume must happen. What can you tell us about the messages that this homeschooling network has apparently been sharing amongst themselves.
12: Yeah, Laura. So so official an official with the State Department of Education says that really, while they're reviewing any compliance potential compliance issues here, there's not much they can do because they don't review or approve curriculums for homeschooling. Now, when you talk about what is actually, uh, you know, being circulated here, this is a group that's believed to operate out of upper Sandusky, Ohio, and they are not shy about their uh, pro-Nazi, white supremacist, homophobic, you name it, it's probably in their messages. As they describe them though, lessons. You take a look at one lesson they posted around Thanksgiving a copywriting lesson where they're teaching how to handwrite, but in this case, using quotes from Hitler to do it. Now, last month, as Martin Luther King Jr. Day approached, Mrs. Saxon, a username, wrote, it's up to us to ensure our children know him, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the deceitful, dishonest, riot-inciting Negro he actually was. He is the face of a movement which ethnically cleansed whites out of urban areas and precipitated the anti-white regime that we are now fighting to free ourselves. From. And in bold underline, the post continued saying this is a unit study for elementary aged children. Now, one of the alleged leaders of this white supremacy social media messaging platform group. He has now, is no longer working for his own family owned and run business, according to the company who they put out a statement saying, the viewpoints and ideology recently expressed by Logan Lawrence and his wife in no way represent the values of Lawrence Insurance Agency, its owners or employees. Accordingly, we emphatically denounce what they've said and done, and we wholeheartedly empathize with all who have been hurt, upset and disturbed by their conduct. Now, an online research a research group named Logan and Katya Lawrence as those who run it. I've reached out to them many times, have not gotten a response at this point. But Logan's brother, Jordan, told me that they the larger family had no idea this was happening they are gutted to find out they say it's not representative of who they are as a larger family he says he hasn't spoken to his brother in recent days and another source close to the family who says that they've been getting threats as a result of this has said that there has been collateral damage in their community in upper sandusky which as you can imagine is pretty small but also that source said It's pretty telling they did this in secret, implying that if they had known about it, the surrounding community, the surrounding family, that they would have stopped this from happening, at the very least challenged them on this. But as we talked about in the beginning, the local school officials, state school officials have condemned it. Not clear what they can actually do about it since it's homeschool.
1: Omar is pretty stunning penmanship through Hitler lessons Discussions about Dr. King, really outrageous, I think. And again, you said this is elementary schools in part. Stunning, Omar Jimenez. Thank yeah. you so much. I want to bring in Scott Demaro. He is the president of the Ohio Education Association, which represents 120,000 teachers and faculty and support professionals in Ohio's schools. Scott, I'm, I'm very glad you're here. Uh, it might be very stunning not only the content of what was being circulated within this homeschooling organization, but I was surprised to find out that under Ohio law, the State Department of Education does not review or approve a homeschool curriculum, and parents just need in order to teach, but they need to provide 900 hours of instruction every year, notify the superintendent every year, provide assurance the teacher, the teacher has a high school diploma or other equivalency, and provide an assessment of the student's work, including results of a nationally standardized test. Do these requirements, given what we're learning from this investigation, need to get much tougher
3: The answer is no, Uh, they they do need to get tougher. Uh, There is an inherent problem with homeschooling requirements in Ohio and in other states uh, that just allow for a almost completely unregulated system to move forward. The problem is that uh, local school districts that receive these reports or or letters uh, from families indicating that they're planning on homeschooling their children don't really have the authority or the capacity to provide oversight that I think is required. And, and I'll, I'll be clear that I am sure that the vast majority of people who homeschool their children are not like the Lawrences. Uh, they all you know, may have very good reasons for, for uh, making that choice to homeschool their children, but this is an inherently unregulated system. And I don't know that there's a lot that can be done what we ought to make sure that we're not doing is in any way subsidizing uh, this action. And in the state of Ohio right now, homeschool families get a $250 tax credit uh, from the people of Ohio to, to offset their costs. Uh, there's legislation that's been introduced by uh, members of the General Assembly that would increase that to $2,000. Uh, I will say, for one, as a taxpayer, I don't want to subsidize people that are going to that are going to be teaching hateful ideology to children.
1: And yet, and I'm glad you mentioned that tax credit. Um, and 250 is nothing to sneeze at. And but in the long run, would it be? I wonder if you were to remove that particular tax credit, would that be enough of an incentive for people to essentially teach ac- according to a much more regulated system in the homeschool environment? But I, I do note what you've mentioned that there has been swift condemnation from teachers, of course, in Ohio. And um, but yet there has not been. An agreement on how and what to do about this. And I think it speaks to a larger issue in a world where we're talking about parental involvement in schools, the idea of how one where how could you possibly regulate what a parent wants to teach at home or to espouse these viewpoints? Is there some sort of a solution that you think right now is on the immediate horizon to address this even outside of the tax credit? Because I know that um, Governor Mike DeWine in Ohio has stopped short of saying whether he'll actually explore policy solutions. And the Republican Senate president says he doesn't think that stricter homeschooling policies are the right answer necessarily. So how do you find the middle ground to change it?
3: I think it's gonna be really tough, especially since... In the Senate, uh, there's legislation to restructure the State Department of Education uh, to gut the authority of the State Board of Education. And in that legislation, it would be to even further deregulate homeschooling in Ohio. Uh, I don't know where where the debate over regulation is going to go, but there is a larger movement uh, that we're dealing with in Ohio and in many states across the country and that is to take resources away from the 90% of children who attend our public schools and divert them to private options. Uh, People have freedom, people have the opportunity to make choices to send their kids to private schools uh, or to homeschool them, but it is not the responsibility of the taxpayers of the state to subsidize those choices when we need to instead ensure that every single one of our students, regardless of their race, regardless of their zip code, have the resources that they need to reach and achieve their potential. That's where we need to focus our issues. Let's not get distracted by uh, these kinds of side issues. Let's focus our attention on fully and fairly funding our public schools.
1: That is part of a much longer conversation. Just to give the audience a perspective here, we're talking about more than 51,000 during the 2020 2021 school year, according to the Fordham Institute. We're homeschooled in Ohio. We're talking about 2.8% of all K-12 through 12 students. So, you know, not an insignificant, but certainly not the majority having this particular um, access to this information. A really important conversation that does not have to end today. Nice speaking with you, Scott. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Well, Patrick Mahomes, otherwise known as Pat Mahomes and Jalen Hurts, going in front of the cameras ahead of their big Super Bowl appearance. And they're talking about just how historic their matchup is. On February 12th, two black quarterbacks will be starting in the Super Bowl for the very first time ever. And today, the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback, Pat Mahomes, and Philadelphia Eagles quarterback, Jalen Hurts, are both speaking out about the history-making occasion.
11: Yeah, I mean uh, to be on the world stage um, and uh, have two black quarterbacks uh, starting in the Super Bowl, I think it's special. And I've learned more and more about the, the history of the black quarterback since I've been in this league. And uh, uh, the guys that came before me and, and Jalen set the stage for this. And now I'm just glad that we can kind of set the stage for guys that are uh, the kids that are coming up now. Yeah, I
4: think it's history. I think it's something that's worthy of being noted and. It is history, you know. It's come a long way. I think there's only been seven um, African American quarterbacks to play in the Super Bowl, so um, to be the first for some is is pretty cool. So I know it'll be a good one.
1: Joining me now, CNN Sports Analyst Christine Brennan and former NFL wide receiver Dante Stallworth, both here with us. I'm thinking with you, Dante. Um, You hear Mahomes talking about and learning more about uh, the black quarterbacks and sort of the history and the study of this as well. Talk to me about what this means, the historic significance of this, having two black quarterbacks playing in the big game.
13: It's huge, it's obviously it's the first time. These two young men are extremely talented. They are leaders on the field and they're leaders in their community. And to have two guys that are not even in the prime of their careers, they're, they're still young. They have many more years to play, hopefully. And so these two guys are leading these teams, two of the best teams in the NFL, they're going to square off next Sunday, and it's going to be huge, not only because of on the field, everything on the field, but off the field, obviously. These two kids are really good at what they do. They are really good at um, being leaders in the community. But I think most importantly, too, you heard Patrick talk about uh, off the field. He, he really, as you, as, you, as you grow in the league, you start to understand the history more. Doug Williams was obviously the, obviously the first player to play in the NFL as a black quarterback. And he changed the narrative of what black quarterbacks can do in the NFL. For almost 40 years later, now you have two black quarterbacks that are playing in the Super Bowl.
1: Funny you should mention, because I actually had a chance to interview Doug Williams earlier about this. And here's what he had to say, um, thinking about this moment and the significance.
10: You know, I can remember some 45 years ago that Vince Evans and myself was uh, the first two black quarterbacks played in, in, a, in a regular NFL game. Back now when I was at Tampa and he was at Chicago. And, and last night um, when I was sitting there watching uh, Patrick, I'd already seen Jalen uh, uh, win his game and sitting there watching passes. So many, so many anxiety came through to me. And, and from the emotional standpoint, you know, I got kind of emotional to see that really happening.
14: Christine, you used to cover him yeah. as well. Talk to me about the significance of this. I covered that entire season, uh, for the Washington Post, covering the Washington football team. Every second of that story of Doug, he wasn't the starter. There was another player named Jay Schrader, but Joe Gibbs, the great Hall of Fame coach, decided to go with Doug for the playoffs. And then, of course, for the Super Bowl, making him the first black quarterback to start a Super Bowl. Hard to believe that was January of 88. And then, of course, he won the game and became the MVP. Heroic. He bent his knee back. We were talking about this earlier. Uh, He didn't. He came out for a play. He wanted to fight to get back in that game. Won the game. Won the MVP award. Uh, Doug comes from another era. He comes from a time, Laura and Dante, where where guys were told if you were a black man you can't play quarterback or if you play in college. You can't play in the pros. I cheered for a quarterback as a girl, the University of Toledo, Chuck Ealy, who had to go to the Canadian Football League to play quarterback. And yet he was one of the greatest quarterbacks I've ever watched play. But at that time, my dad told me, they're not gonna let him play quarterback because they don't think black men have the ability or are smart enough. It was just pure racism. And I learned that as a young girl, a suburban white girl, because of Chuck Ealy. And then to see Doug be able to pull it off, there was such joy for him. Tears in his eyes. And I have to tell you, as a hard-bitten journalist, there were probably tears in my eyes. Seeing him accomplish what, a, what, 10, 12 years earlier, a man I cheered for, Chuck Ely, could never have mm. accomplished. And now, to see this, on one level, as we've talked about, we're shocked that this is the first time yeah. that two black men are starting. but. What an achievement. And it certainly will not be the last time the two black men are starting.
1: And as you mentioned, Nathalie, there's the idea of the, the age of these players as well and what younger people are looking at and seeing the, and the new what ought to be the norms happening again as well. Um, and let's not forget, these are incredible athletes, period, point blank on that. Let's turn to another one, however, because in a few games, as we were talking about the Super Bowl coming up, in about, what, three games, I would say, I'm just averaging here, for one man named LeBron James, who is within the sights of a significant record. Um, It looks like, I mean, he is going to surpass at some point this season, probably in the very near future, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the NBA all-time scoring leader. So significant. What would this mean for his legacy?
14: He's the greatest of all time, I think. And not just in basketball, but, you know, that staying power that we talk about with athletes. Uh, And I think also the way he has lived his life, Laura and Dante, in the public eye, someone who only went to high school, didn't go to college, just a, a, an exemplary American, a fine human being, a role model, giving back to the community in Akron uh, and in northern Ohio. Um, never a false step, never a mistake, absolutely the longevity the human being that he is uh, it's remarkable to see and history will of course record him as one of our great great athletes and great people
1: he do- he does as an athlete transcend his sport what do you see i mean obviously you a professional athlete in the football arena but the idea of seeing the greatness it's hard to not respect it
13: yeah he's i mean he's in what his 20th year now i mean he's came into the league as a young 18 year old fresh out of high school as christine said he played his first game in sacramento i was there i'm from sacramento and I had just gotten into the NFL, so we kind of came into the NFL at the same time, or we came, came into professional sports at the same time. I've been out of the NFL for about 10 years, and he's still playing. <laughs> yeah. So that's like, you know, to me, that's just mind-boggling. But it, it's a testament to his work ethic. It's a testament to his craft and working on his craft and really just committing himself to not only, uh, you know, phys- staying physically fit, but you have to stay mentally fit. You have to, uh, the way he eats, the way he gets his rest, all that is important, just as a professional athlete in general, but to sustain uh, to, to have sustained consistency and, and greatness and for so long, it, that, that is something that's really special.
1: I wonder if he has that Tom Brady diet. I mean, I don't know. That's why I, I think about it all the time. I wonder. This fountain of youth is coming there in some way. I bet somehow it's always hard to get Lakers tickets in different places. Something tells us they're going to be higher and higher prices all of a sudden in anticipation of this extraordinary event. So we'll follow along. Thank you both. And everyone, it looks like they're spreading love and affection. This Iranian couple dancing in Tehran's main square. But they were charged with spreading corruption and vice. And now they've been given lengthy prison sentences. Prison for dancing. That story, next. As part of the ongoing severe crackdown on dissent by Iran's hardline regime, a young couple has been handed a lengthy prison sentence for dancing in a main square in Tehran. This is the video that got them into trouble, and it shows the woman dancing without her compulsory headscarf. A source says they were arrested by security forces days after they posted the video on social media. A human rights group reports they've been sentenced to 10 and a half years charged with spreading corruption and vice and disrupting national security. Iran's judiciary says they got a five-year sentence. Countless Iranians have been arrested and some executed for taking part in nationwide protests following the death of a young woman in police custody late last year. She was accused of not covering her hair. Well, these days, many American aspects of American politics seems to erupt into a war of words. But what about the war over words? Is the battle over language alienating people an attempt to be inclusive? Well, my next guest says that looks to be exactly the case. Well, the so-called war on woke is heating up. Tonight, we're learning Arkansas's Republican governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, may soon sign a bill that would impose restrictions on drag shows. That's according to the Washington Post. Now, this proposal still needs to make its way, of course, through the state house to the governor's desk. But her spokesperson telling the Post, the proposal is not about banning anything but protecting kids from sexually explicit drag shows, unquote. Sina has reached out to Governor Sanders for comment, and we're still waiting to hear back. But that's not all. In her first month in office, she issued an executive order to prohibit critical race theory in Arkansas schools. She also banned the term Latinx in official documents. And it's not just her Across the country, more politicians are getting traction with rhetorical and legislative wars on so-called woke culture and language. I want to turn now to New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristoff. He has a new piece out on these language wars and writes in part, I fear that linguistic contortions, however well meant, aren't actually addressing our country's desperate inequities or achieving progressive dreams, but rather are creating fuel for right-wing leaders aiming to take the country in the opposite direction. Nicholas Kristof joins us now on this conversation. I'm glad that you're here, a very thought-provoking column and one that people have been really talking about, frankly, for a very long time. I wonder, in your mind, what is the the goal um, with all of the new words? It's, it's, It's to be... Inclusive, of course, but you fear that it might be alienating some.
15: Yeah, and of course, I come at this from completely the opposite perspective of Governor Sanders. Uh, you know, I roll.
1: We're uh, having a little bit of a hard time with your audio. I want to get that fixed. I want to make sure that we hear your position. It's very important, especially given this very thought provoking piece. And it's not unlike frankly, what um, the former President Barack Obama had to say in a podcast um, a few months ago before the midterm elections talking about the idea of, you know, the good intentions leading to some kind of alienation. I have you back. What did you want to say?
15: Yeah, I mean, I come at this from the opposite perspective of Governor Sanders. Um, I think that we should be inclusive. I think we should be prepared to uh, think about our language and use it in a way that you now, that obviously doesn't dehumanize anybody. But I do think that we've gone overboard. Um, yeah, you mentioned, you raised the term Latinx. Okay, uh, you know, 3% of Latinos use the term Latinx. Um, uh, Representative Richie Torres, himself, uh, Afro-Latino, uh, you know, told me that maybe this says more about the agenda-setting power of affluent white leftists than it does about the interests of, of working class Latinos.
14: And, Mm. you know,
15: I'm speaking to you right now from rural Oregon. Um, I think that there are a lot of Americans who, instead of feeling included, feel excluded, feel that the gap between uh, well educated liberals, often urban liberals, who are crafting these new terms, uh, is excluding them. And they don't. Know where to tread and they resent it, and I think that makes them more likely to vote against their economic interest and to support somebody like Governor DeSantis. So, I uh, coming at this from a liberal, um, I think that our efforts to be inclusive have actually been counterproductive.
1: So, is there a way to course correct? I mean, I, and I know on one of the examples that you you write in this, um, about the examples you talk about. Perhaps being a gift to say a Governor Ron DeSantis, the idea of people wanting to go in a direction that might be contrary to what their stated interests have been because they're trying to get away from the feeling of walking on eggshells. But you write also about a recent tweet, and this is very really interesting, from the Associated Press Style book, by the way. And it says, we recommend avoiding general and often dehumanizing the labels such as the poor, the mentally ill, the French, The disabled, the college educated. I mean, the French one stands out, obviously, as um, is odd in and of itself. They ended up deleting this very tweet. But I wonder, what do you see was the goal in the first place of this style book section?
15: You know, I mean, I think they had a concern about the way the is used sometimes in ways that that are pejorative people's you know uh if if somebody says the jews or the blacks that sounds kind of like throat clearing to something bigoted that's going to come next i think that's less true of the college educated and certainly is not true of the french and so i just think well it might be depending upon should... who's
1: talking i don't know <laughs> i don't know how it's yeah. being used in context for people but yeah go ahead
15: you know, and I guess I wish that we would spend less time fussing over linguistic rules and more time solving problems you know here on the West Coast, we have an enormous problem with unsheltered homelessness, and our the places in the country that have come up with the greatest linguistic response uh, you know people experiencing homelessness uh, houselessness, et etc, are the places that have actually the greatest homelessness and I have friends who are homeless, and you know, they appreciate the concern, they appreciate the inclusiveness, but what they want isn't new terms. What they want is housing, and I wish that we would focus more on actually solving some of these practical problems. I think that would be better for the people we're trying to serve and for uh, actually you know, winning votes in, in, uh, you know, in the next election.
10: You,
1: you, know, you illustrate the idea of form over substance or, you know, more colloquially putting lipstick on a pig in a number of these instances. We'll see what actually happens in the long run. Thank you so much. Nice speaking to you in a very compelling and thought-provoking piece. Thank you so much. I want to be bring with in- you. Thank you. I want to bring in CNN Flickle commentators Van Jones and Scott Jennings here to the conversation. Um, Let me bring you in here first, Van, on this point. And and Scott, only because I don't want to go from talking about lipstick on a pig knowing that you have a pig and thinking I was only singling you out on this. He really does have a pet pig, everyone. There you go. So, Van, I'll begin with you instead here. Um, Van, is Nick Kristoff right in the sense of um, are some on the left undercutting their own messaging by going what they believe to be too far?
9: Yes. <laughs> yes. Great. Now for Scott. Uh, Next. <laughs> <laughs> no, Go ahead. You know, I, I, I obviously so. I, I think Scott and I are going to be in violent agreement tonight. Um, look, I understand that there are people who are concerned about the status quo, the way certain groups are left out and mistreated. And they're worried that some of the ways we talk might be Uh, The old language might be codifying the old attitudes, and so they want new language to to, to signify new attitudes. But it's gone so far that it's a joke, it's a parody of itself all too often. And so even people like myself who are passionately committed to these causes, you find yourself, you're afraid to even talk on a Zoom call because you might say the wrong word and then spend 15 minutes getting lectured about how, you know, something that nobody had even heard of six months ago is now required speech. Uh, in, in polite company. And it, it's a distraction from getting anything actually done.
1: But how does that, just to follow up on that point, how does that in your mind translate to how an electorate might proceed? This is one thing to have the idea of whatever barriers and guardrails ought to be in place or are now in place in the private sector, of course, and in your own individual lives. But in terms of how it translates for voters, do you see this as being problematic for those who are maybe Democrats and incumbents or liberal minded?
9: Are you asking me or are you asking yes? Yes, Van. Oh, uh, yes. Listen, I, we, we are handing a big fat gift to the right because before they can get in, before you don't uh, uh, get a chance to engage subtly with these issues and what's going on with people who don't have houses and people who are being left out because the language is so crazy that you can just make fun of the whole site. So whatever these people are talking about. They have too much time on their hands. Whatever these people are talking about, they're clearly not like me and you. They have this much time to come up with, you know, people who are assigned female at birth. Have you if, if you've got that many syllables to fire at the word woman, you've got more time on your hands than I do. And I think it creates a cultural gap between uh, 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 the Democratic Party and an awful lot of voters, which is not necessary.
1: Scott, on that point, and I I want you you to weigh in one moment, please, Um, because there was a a group of Democrats, by the way, who were in Connecticut, who are the latest politicians calling for a ban on, for example, Latinx, that term on official government documents. Of course, you had the Arkansas governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, doing something similarly. And so there are Democrats who are also against the so-called language wars that Van is alluding to as well. How do you see this, Scott?
16: Uh, well, on the point you uh, asked about earlier, the electoral impacts of this, I mean, look around the country, look around middle America, uh, look around rural communities. You just don't see that many elected Democrats anymore. I mean, here I'm sitting in Kentucky tonight and about the only elected Democrats left in office other than our governor, Andy Bashir, If you look in the state legislature, they're really clustered around the urban areas. That's true in a lot of states between the coasts. And I think a lot of it has to do uh, with this language war that you're talking about and the the implications of it that, that Van is alluding to. When you speak like this and you don't sound you know, like just sort of a normal person talking about normal everyday stuff, you sound like you're searching for things to make up, searching for problems to make up, uh, and you're using language that sounds foreign, like a foreign language to people out here in the middle of the country. It is a total barrier to political communications. How can I listen to what you have to say about you know whatever the problem of the day is when when you're using a language i don't even recognize so well, me... if i you know I wear this hat very often but if i were putting my democrat strategist hat on i would say this is one of the biggest problems their party has in in rural america right now is you, you may have all the greatest policy ideas in the world but these cultural language problems and uh, some of these invented issues, I think, and, and catering, frankly, to a real fringe who are trying to push this on the rest of us and make us all feel like we're taking crazy pills. major barrier. it's It's going to be a real electoral barrier.
1: well, let me talk, I mean, let me just say, though, I mean, obviously we're talking about this in in very wide terms. It's a very wide umbrella to think about what all the terms we're speaking about. Certainly, there will be those who agree that certain terms will seem quite foreign generationally, but there are certain terms that are being used or being asked to be used that would honor someone's individual identity or honor somebody's individual feelings of their connectivity to the world around them. And it's is it so unlike, say, the transition from words of black to African-American? Is it so unlike the conversations that we've had over time about how we address Changes in the way that we view our society and we, we codify we use our language van to really codify some of the transition and the evolution of thought is it Is it problematic to have a language that matches the way the way in which our moral compasses po, um, point at this point
9: look this is this is tricky stuff because you, you you don't want to give aid and comfort to people who actually you know hate poor people or who despise poor people or who don't care about transgender kids or who don't care about gays and lesbians or who don't care about people of color. You don't want to give aid and comfort to those folks. But that's not the conversation that I'm trying to have. I'm talking about the people who care, the people who really care, but who may be speaking in ways that are confusing or alienating or come across as so morally superior or so intellectually elevated that other people who care feel left out. In other words, in trying to fight alienation, you can sometimes create alienation. In terms of trying to fight exclusion, you might create exclusion. And that's just the moral hazard of trying to move things forward. I think we have to take that moral hazard uh, seriously. Those of us who do care, I don't want to do anything that's going to make it harder for us to deliver justice. But the way we're talking sometimes, I think, is actually can be a barrier. Now, listen, every generation is going to say, look, well, we want to do it differently. We want to say it differently. So you have this generational uh, friction. That's okay. We'll get through it. But. It's not like it's only on one side. If, if you don't agree with us on this term that we just came up with six months ago, you're a bigot. That mm-hmm. implication, I think, is dangerous and unfair.
1: But who is doing that, Scott? Do you oh, have the perception I, that, that that's actually happening? Uh, Scott, I mean, oh, I, yes. I, I, and yeah. I'll ask Scott on this point, especially the idea, yeah. and again, taking a step back. You know, we're talking about in very broad terms here, all of the terms, so to speak. Which we, I would note that the Associated Press had a style guide about the words, the word "the" being used here for that very reason. But you know, talking about the terms that are out there, Scott. I mean, is is this in and of itself, however, a talking point where it seems as though everyone is being attacked and tarred and feathered because they use a, a wrong term or one that is not the national, the, into the international zeitgeist? Or is that more of a talking point that suggests that? hey, we, you would be targeted, the fear tactic, what, what might happen as opposed to the reality?
16: Oh, I, I think Van's exactly right. I think, look, you know, Van and I don't agree on everything, but we've had a lot of conversations uh, where we do agree. Uh, but he's sometimes, I think, where I am, and that is having conversations where you're, you're trying to talk across, you know, party lines or tr- across ideological lines you know, I, I'll just be candid. Sometimes you feel like you're walking on eggshells because you you don't know what you're going to say that could totally derail a meeting or totally derail you know what is otherwise you know something that's going in a positive direction. I know people in corporate settings feel that way. They're constantly walking up and down the hall, wondering if HR is going to come knocking on the door. Step on a college campus with a conservative worldview, and uh, you know you're worried about opening your mouth. I Think a lot of conservatives feel like there is a group of people in this country who are openly looking to target anyone who doesn't fall in line with this new language zeitgeist. And as Van said, some of this stuff was just recently invented. And if you don't hop on board, they then try to use that to make you look like you're a racist or a bigot or you somehow you know don't care about the problems of the day or poor people or, or what have you. And that that is just let, simply let add, not true. Th- this targeting is, a, is a real fear, and it does happen.
9: It's a, what I love about your show is we can be nuanced here. So there's two mm-hmm. things are happening, not just one. On the one hand... You do have people who, and I've had the experience of saying you know, the wrong thing, and suddenly the meeting is derailed, and you didn't even know the new term. That's true. Also, you have people, I think, like Governor DeSantis, that's using this, that's actually mm-hmm. taking this and trying to use it as a political weapon for his own purposes. I don't think he necessarily believes or cares in anything, but this is, this is a new cudgel. It's a, it is a new talking point for some on the right to, to try to get, get get something going. And so... Two things can be true at the same time. I think on the right, be careful because it sounds like you don't care about people. On the left, be careful because it sounds like you're being a little bit highfalutin and maybe more interested in sounding right than doing right. All of us, as we get to this new society, are going to have to be careful and 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 uh, listen to each other.
1: Well, let's see if the political campaigns coming ahead for 2024 appreciate the nuance you all are speaking with tonight. Thank you both, <laughs> gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you. And speaking of Thank that, you. if you think the next presidential campaign is going to be smooth sailing, well, I have a bridge that you might like to buy tonight. The battle for 2024 is, in fact, heating up and we'll tell you who's angling to get into the race. So here we are, only about a month into 2023, and there are signs the battle for next year's presidential election is already heating up. More Republicans now eyeing a run against the scandal plagued former President Donald Trump. But Trump is already hammering the man who could be his toughest competition.
9: Ron DeSantis got elected
4: because of me. You remember he had nothing. He was dead. He was leaving the race He came over and he begged me, begged me for an endorsement. He was getting ready to drop out. And there were tears coming down from his eyes. He said, if you endorse me, I'll win.
1: I really want to know if that's true. I really want to know if that was true. But joining me now, CNN political commentator Ashley Allison, former National Republican Senatorial Committee aide Liam Donovan and Margaret Tollive, director of the Democracy, Journalism, and Citizenship Institute at Syracuse University. Look, Margaret, he has not, DeSantis has not officially thrown his hat into the ring yet. He's already, however, being targeted by Donald Trump. Even after news that others are thinking about doing and going into the race, what does this tell you about the offensive on DeSantis by Trump?
7: Well, Donald Trump knows who his biggest rival looks like right now, but DeSantis is not the only target of Trump's uh, verbal warm-up activities. He's preemptively going against Nikki Haley, and it's going to be another two weeks before she throws her hat in the ring. He's calling her disloyal, right? Throwing uh, throwing some shade at um, Pompeo, um, a little bit of Mike Pence. Like he, at a minimum, is trying to get everyone who might jump into that race to understand uh, that if they really come after him, he is going to set them on fire. And in fact, when pressed about whether he would support a nominee other than him, he's not saying that he will. So uh, it is, again, raising that sort of specter of, is is Donald Trump going to be in a position where if he's not the nominee, he's going to set the party on fire? But it, that's for a year from now. OK, in the meantime, it is he's very clearly trying to set boundaries. He understands he's going to have rivals in this race, but he's trying to get them to sort of behave, to turn against each other and to save some of their fire against him. I want to play that moment you talk about when Trump was speaking about not wanting to
1: support the Republican nominee if it were not him. Listen to this.
16: If you're not the nominee, will you support whoever the GOP nominee is?
4: It would depend. I would, I would give you the same answer I gave in 2016 during the debate. It would have to depend on who the nominee was.
1: Groundhog Day, Liam. Here we are again on this point. But I will say, I mean, if you are Governor DeSantis and the fact that you are one of the people that Trump is targeting you might want to give yourself a pat on the back that something's going right for you, that you're, you are perceived as a rival, right?
8: Well, I think the DeSantis team understands that they are the ones that are obviously seen as the key rival, but they've frozen this field in a lot of ways. I think the people expected by now you'd have a lot more people joining the battle. <clears throat> Everyone is waiting to see yeah. not only whether DeSantis gets in, but when he gets in, how he attacks this and how he's received, because he's been built up in a lot of ways by a lot of, you know, right wing media to a lot of these voters. And there's going to be a moment where people need to see whether what they're getting is what they've been promised. And I think right now uh, that campaign or, or campaign to be is very Proceeding very deliberately, very carefully, running a campaign that's a lot like the George W. Bush campaign in 1999, sort of road testing some of these things, kind of you know doing a book tour, allowing people coming down to Tallahassee to sort of kick the tires, but not fully engaging to the point where uh, Donald Trump can really get at him, and it shows a level of desperation and, and fear coming from the Trump camp that they're that they're really trying to engage him already.
1: Speaking of um, Trump, his former press secretary is now the governor, obviously, of Arkansas. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is now named to do the, um, the retort, essentially, for State of the Union address. What is that telling you that she was the one who was chosen at this time, not, say, a governor, DeSantis, perhaps, or anyone else?
2: Well, I think traditionally, whoever does the response is a rising star, but not someone that would necessarily decide they were going to run in the most upcoming election uh, for president But I think it also says a lot about the Republican Party. And, you know, let's not forget the era of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, behind that podium lying to the American people, admitting that she was a lying to the American people when she was the spokesperson for the sitting president um, as press secretary. And now as governor, one of the first things she did was to ban being able to say Latin X in her state, you know, kind of playing to the red meat that the base wants to do. I think this Republican Party picks her to say she's not Trump, but she's not a non-Trump person. And so we still are the party of Trump. She is an up and coming star. Her name is well known. Um, It it sends me signals that if he's the nominee, they will fall in line, that many people might not, you know, risk their political capital to really go into the 2020 primary, 2024 primary and pick a candidate. Um, It's telling to me for the Republican Party in the future that it's still aligned with Trump.
1: Well, we will see what happens in all of it. And as it comes in, Um, stick around, everyone, because we've got more to talk about today, including the opioid epidemic that has plagued the United States for decades. And now there may be a new front in the drug war. A new investigation alleges some pharmacies in Mexico, including some in popular tourist and border towns that are frequented by Americans, are selling pills that purport to be legitimate medications but are actually laced with fentanyl. The trafficking of illicit drugs made to look like legitimate prescription pills is exploding in this country, leading to a rising toll of overdose deaths. The number of pills the DEA confiscates every year has skyrocketed from just over 2 million in 2019 to, get this, more than 50 million last year alone. Nearly all the pills contain fentanyl, the deadliest drug in the United States. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, was granted some rare access to a secret lab where the DEA tests the seized illicit drugs.
7: Over
4: 99% of what we see are fake. They contain fentanyl.
11: 99%, that's just, that's that's mind-numbing. And look closely at how sophisticated
17: the counterfeiters have become. And just for an example, these are some of the ones that we will seize that have the same M, and it's more the 30 on the other side. If you look at what is real here, and the rainbow fentanyl,
11: they're not even really trying anymore to disguise this. This is clearly fake. But also, if you look at this 800 grams of fentanyl, it turns into 400 to 500,000 potentially lethal pills. Think about that one bag, potentially 400 to 500,000 lethal doses.
1: Unbelievable. And an investigation by the LA Times has found that pharmacies in several Mexican cities, including popular tourists and border towns, are selling counterfeit prescription pills containing fentanyl and methamphetamine as legitimate prescription drugs. Connor Sheets is an investigative and enterprise reporter for the Times, and he joins me now. It's really stunning to think about, just looking at those side by side, that Dr. Gupta pointed out, you and your colleague actually tested pills, Connor, from pharmacies in three different cities. What did you find?
17: Um, So we we tested pills in Cabo San Lucas, in San Jose, uh, in Cabo San Lucas, San Jose del Cabos, and in Tijuana. And we found that uh, we tested 17 pills that we bought at a number of different small pharmacies. And we found that 71% of them tested positive for an illicit substance. Um, In all of these cases, we're talking about Um, opioid pills such as Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycodone, pills that were being sold as those drugs in legitimate pharmacies in these tourist areas were coming up positive for fentanyls. And in uh, Adderall, pills that were being sold as Adderall, 100% of the ones we tested came up positive for meth also. So this is a widespread thing with different types of drugs.
1: Unbelievable to think about. I remember hearing the stories as well. We've interviewed people on this show as well. People who've mistakenly taken or thought they're taking one drug and taking another instead, and it has been fatal. And we know that there are pharmacies in Mexico that sell a variety of medications that really would require to have a prescription if it were sold in the United States of America. Walk me through just how easy it would be not only to get this, but how would someone be able to understand or know, identify themselves, whether what they're getting is legitimate or fentanyl?
17: Yes. Yeah, so I mean, there's really no way to know whether uh, what you're getting is legitimate or fentanyl, other than testing it. So there's test strips that are, um, you know, sanctioned by harm reduction experts, people like that, who, um, you know, know that people are going to be using drugs. Um, if you use these test strips, it'll tell you, does, do my drugs have fentanyl? And then they look a lot like COVID test strips, and they tell, they can tell you immediately if there's a trace of um, of an illicit substance. And it's a substance, but it won't tell you the concentration. So you really just know that it's going to be in there. And as far as how easy it is to get. Um, We just walked down some of the main areas in Cabo, which is a very famous, you know, very popular tourist destination in Tijuana, right over the border where people go for medical tourism, for the red light district, for eating, for, you know, going out at night and uh, really just almost just kind of walked into random pharmacies to some degree. Other than the ones that other than large uh, chain pharmacies, most of the pharmacies we went into were selling these type of pills.
1: You know, I know in your reporting that these pills are likely coming from Mexican cartels. So I do wonder about the crackdown now. This is being more and more apparent. But I also wonder what is different about the American pharmaceutical supply chain? What makes it different? Are we here in the States able to understand and know that what we think we're getting is, in fact, what it ought to be?
17: Yes, sir. I mean, that's a, a question that I don't know the answer to. I mean, we would hope that the FDA is doing uh, you know, its due diligence to make sure that the drugs that we're that were, uh, you know, getting out of pharmacy are, are legitimate. I mean, these were these were drugs that didn't require a, a prescription. We didn't have to have a prescription. There was no, they were being sold individually over the counter. So, um, you know, uh, we, we actually think they might have been targeting tourists because some of these cost as much as $35 a pill. And if you imagine you're a person, a working person living in Mexico or in the United States, $35 a pill is a pretty steep price, um, you know, so this is probably people that are coming in for for weekends, partying, those type of things, or studying, or whatever. And uh, so it's it's really an, it's an interesting situation.
1: It's really devastating to think about just the span and reach of the opioid crisis. Thank you for your reporting. It makes us all that much more aware, Connor. Thank you. you have me on. You know, look, more than 100,000 people a year are now dying of drug overdoses in the United States. The majority from opioids, according to the CDC, and around a million have lost their lives to overdoses since the opioid crisis began 20 years ago. Now, the new CNN film, American Pain, reveals the rise and fall of the identical twin brothers who ran one of the largest opioid pill mill empires in this country. Here's a preview.
13: The George brothers did not start the opioid crisis, but they sure as hell poured gasoline on the fire. Let's talk about growing up in Florida. Anything to do with money perks
8: Chris and Jeff's interest. The big money was at the pain clinics.
13: It was window dressing that allowed them to deal drugs legally.
3: It was a line all the way down the street. It was like a frat house. We were basically the Disneyland of pain clinics.
13: They thought they were smarter than everybody else, and they could get away with everything. I felt this whole thing spiraling out of control it was the never-ending pill bottle.
17: All these patients drive from out of state. People were dying because of them.
11: They didn't care. This was just batshit crazy. They
13: put on the wire. These people buried themselves. We have a signal. Only in America. American Pain, Sunday at nine on CNN.
1: There's word today that the Pentagon is tracking a suspected Chinese spy balloon that's been traveling at a high altitude over the continental United States. CNN's Pentagon correspondent, Oren Lieberman, has the details. Oren, what is going on?
18: Laura, the Pentagon has been tracking this surveillance balloon for several days now. U.S. officials say it came into the U.S. over Montana, coming in from Canada, and that's where they began tracking it, at first launching F-22 fighter jets. In the end, the decision was made not to shoot it down. President Joe Biden was asked for military options, but senior military leaders, including Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Mark Milley, advised against shooting this down. Instead, they are keeping an eye on it and seeing where it goes. The Pentagon does acknowledge this t- traveled over several sensitive sites though they won't specify which sites those are. It is worth noting that Montana is home to ballistic missile silos, so perhaps that's what this was after. It is also worth noting, of course, that the Pentagon says they are confident, very confident, in fact, that this was launched by China, and they brought it up through diplomatic channels both here in Washington and in Beijing, essentially to express how angry they are about this. Tensions with China are, of course, already high. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken headed to Beijing soon, and this will only add to those tensions. Laura?
1: Oren Lieberman, thank you so much. And when we come back, something you've really got to see, your favorite Disney princesses reimagined in a whole new way. The founders of the black-owned business who helped launch a new doll collection with Disney are going to join me next. Beautiful. Disney is embarking on a whole new world. The company, partnering with Creative Soul Photography, to launch the Creative Soul doll collection. And it is hitting shelves tomorrow, everyone. First of all, I have to stop for a moment. Just see what you're looking at right there. On the left, you see the images of young black girls dressed up. As the characters on the right, you've got the doll embodiment of these figures. The collection is based on Creative Soul's reimagining of what classic Disney princesses would look like through a diverse lens. The dolls will pay tribute to Disney princesses Tiana, Snow White, Rapunzel, and also Cinderella with natural hairstyles and Afrocentric fabrics. And they're all based on the artwork and the vision of my visionary next guests. I'm so happy to have with me now the founders of Creative Soul Photography, Regis and Karen... Bethancourt, who joined me tonight from the Walt Disney World Resort. I'm so glad that you're both here today. I love your work. I'm so proud to see it. Thank (laughs) Thank you you. so much. Thank you for having having us. (laughs) Talk to me about the vision here, because, I mean, I have a 10-year-old son. I have an 8-year-old daughter. And believe it or not, I once was the age of these little girls. And I think about what this would have meant to see this imagery. Talk to me about what motivated you to do Mm -hmm. this initially.
19: Yeah, so we are uh, Creative Soul Photography as you mentioned. We've been um photographing kids around the world for over 13 years now and um one of the things that we noticed was that um you know, there were so many uh negative stereotypes of kids of color around the world um in the media and we really wanted to change that. We wanted to um just provide a pos- positive um take on kids of color around the world and um we've been doing that for years and And um, when we um, had the opportunity to work with Disney um, to create uh, dolls based off of our photographs, we were so excited because um, we knew the impact that that would have on uh, girls around the world, just being able to see themselves reflected in um, something as classic as the Disney princesses. So, yeah, we were super excited about the opportunity.
1: It's beautiful. I mean, I can't stop looking. I'm looking at you. I'm looking to the screen. (laughs) Everyone is, I mean, it's really captivating and mesmerizing to see. And just the sheer genius behind the wardrobe selections, the choice of color, the hair, the styling of it. I mean, it really is so unbelievable to look at and look at the photo side by side. I mean, I wonder when you started out doing photography, did you ever expect that your photography would Evolve into this level of, one, social commentary, the idea of trying to make sure people yes. <laughs> saw themselves in the work. Where are you thinking about this now, Regis?
13: <clears throat> oh, gosh. I never thought that we would be, be here at all. Um, we just do what we love to do, which was uh, photograph kids and kind of use our platform to give them a platform right. and, you know, raise their confidence and just all of that good stuff. That's my selfish part of it. I love <laughs> seeing that. So, yeah, I never really thought that this would take us here. Right. But we yeah. just
19: we just we actually just showed our, our moms uh, <laughs> yeah. the dolls Aww. and we just, you know, reminisce about the fact that she I was so know. excited um, and the fact that we started in my mom's garage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. so now to have have her see you know these these photographs becoming uh, dolls and Disney princesses oh my uh, gosh it's just an amazing and, feeling and, and oh we're seeing that boys that. now yeah. I mean
1: first of all we're seeing little boys in the screen as well yeah. so it's not just for the girls <laughs> of course my son's always like that's great but what about yes. me <laughs> what about me and these photographs. I know yes. I, mean, yes. I know so
13: I know we hear a lot. Right. you matter you matter <laughs> yes yep, absolutely yeah, we do it
19: all so yeah we <laughs> uh, photograph uh, boys and girls <laughs> You know,
1: I want to know, these dolls are going to be available starting tomorrow. Um, what do you think it's going to mean? Tomorrow, and Do you have yes. a sense of, I mean, I'd love to see them and I want to hold it in my hand and I want to show and showcase it because yes. what a beautiful moment to have a vision realized and then be tangible and then be accessible because that really, oh, in many man. ways, is the beauty of art. What, what, does it, what does it matter if it's going to be inaccessible to those who most need to see it?
19: Correct. Yeah, I think, you know, that's the one thing that I'm excited about. I'm most excited to see you know, the kids' reactions to actually seeing these yeah. dolls. Um, you know, I think, you know, these are obviously a special edition, um, but um, they are going to be made available at the Shop Disney website mm-hmm. and also at the Disney parks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are, you know, just super excited about, um, you know, kids being able to see these. You know, yeah. when, I, when I look at these dolls, um, oh, you know, wow. we just can't stop staring at them. The details, oh, no. yeah, we Let's actually just did um, the uh, <laughs> unboxing of them a few minutes ago and right. we literally cannot stop looking at them just the I details know. of the hair the um, the clothing the fabrics uh, Disney really worked with us to collaborate on every piece yeah. um, of this collaboration so down to you know hair textures and skin tones we wanted to make sure we had you know just a broad representation because we felt that it was so important right. for you know um, kids mm-hmm. to be able to see themselves reflected in the series
13: and not only kids, I'm excited for you know uh, a Adults too, you know, you never got to see this kind of representation, you know, yeah. in their lifetime, you know what I mean? So yeah. this yeah. is amazing. So, yeah,
19: we're super excited. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: I'm so glad you said that because now I won't be ashamed when I have one, too.
19: <laughs> and I have it sitting there going, <laughs> yeah. this, is what, this is what we need. That's yes. the problem. I love right? it. Yeah, we've heard, well, we've heard from plenty of adults that they're going to have these. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know,
1: you're, you're sitting there right now at the Walt Disney World Resort. They're known for appealing to the kid and all of us. So yes. why not? have that be there Mm -hmm. and as broadly represented as possible. Hey, listen, this makes me very proud to see as a mommy, I cannot wait to share it with my children. I know that moms and dads everywhere always want something where a child can envision themselves in a creative space and to have that visionary foundation is so important. So thank you
19: both. Thank you so much for having having us. us. We're super excited. um you know we will be at um the festival of the arts tomorrow mm-hmm. um at epcot and so we will be doing doll signings and book signings mm-hmm. um and we are just super excited about the launch and for people to actually get these in their hands oh, um yeah. tomorrow so i can't wait
1: <laughs> i love it well congratulations to you all and thank you so much for being here tonight and being thank you, oh, thank, in the future. you thank you so much for having us then thank you all for watching. I'm going to go find my tiara somewhere because our coverage continues.
0: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.